The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Happy New Year. You don't have to raise your hands or anything, but I wonder how many of us made some sort of a New Year's resolution leading up to this day. Perhaps you decided that this is going to be the year that you finally make a budget and do a better job of handling your money. Maybe others have set some educational or some professional goals. Maybe some, and maybe I might join this group now, have decided that this is the year that you kind of get in shape. You eat a little better, exercise a little more, take care of your body. My hope and prayer for this coming year is that it would be a year of significant growth and health in our church body. That's what I'm hoping for and looking for and trusting for this year. I don't know specifically how God's going to do that. I don't know all the details, but I think that two things that could be helpful towards that end, one of them has already been mentioned this morning. It's in your bulletin there, the announcement about the ABF class tuning up the Mercedes Church. There's a few more details in there, but by way of announcement, let me exaggerate. Let me uh, expand on that a little bit. Not exaggerate, but <laughs> it's going to be the best class you have ever been to. <laughs> let me expand on that a little bit. The, the title comes from a previous sermon illustration about a Mercedes church, like a Mercedes, that re- a car that reflects well on its designer and its, its makers. We want to be the kind of church that reflects well on our designer and maker. So this class is going to convene in a couple of weeks to look at some attributes of a, that kind of a church that reflects well on its, on its Lord. We're going to look at some of those things, maybe talk some about how to implement them. It's coming up. We, the elder board, kind of see that class as working in conjunction with the second thing that I think will be helpful towards growing us this year, the second half of the book of Ephesians. Two weeks ago, we saw Paul conclude chapter 3 with this this high statement of blessing to God, to Him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. A fitting conclusion to a marvelous presentation of the glorious gospel of God's grace. I've been laying that out for three chapters. Our being was presented there. Who we are now that God has worked in us and who the God is who has worked it, the God who will do far more than that also. To him be glory indeed. Now, as we move to our text for this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, we finally are coming to the doing half of the book. Remember, we've been talking about this. The first half focuses more on being who we are, and the second half switches more to what we are to do. In light of all that's come before, Paul is now going to tell us how we must live. Specifically this morning, we will see this simple main point. Because of the gospel, we must walk in unity. Because of the gospel, we must, just must, walk in unity. It's pretty straightforward. We're actually going to find that the structure of the passage is also pretty straightforward. We're going to look at just two aspects of unity. One longer to start, and then one a little shorter. That's where we're going to go here in just a second. But first, let me read the text and then pray. We're reading Ephesians 4, 
verses 1 to 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Verses 1 to 6. Let me pray. Father, it is my hope that you would use these verses this morning to challenge us challenge and convict to work change in us to move us further along the path towards becoming the kind of church that fully magnificently honors you would you do that would you take the scripture father would you commission the spirit to work it into our hearts and minds would you give us the ability to concentrate this morning to think, to be honest in evaluating ourselves, to receive the word meekly with attitudes of obedience. Would you do that, I pray, Lord? Do it for Christ's glory and for our great good. Amen. The first aspect of unity that we must consider this morning is found in verses 1 to 3. Unity must be earnestly maintained. Unity must be earnestly maintained. I alluded to this several weeks ago when we were in chapter 2, verses 14 and following. Back in those couple of weeks, we saw that Christ had taken people who believed from these two groups, the Jew and the Gentile. He'd taken from those groups, and in fact from many other various groups, and had brought them together and had fashioned one new man in Christ. He'd done that work. He'd made one temple in the Lord, one new family. Unity, then, is reality. It is. It exists. But while back then I alluded to this passage, this morning we come to it directly, and we're going to face the full force of what Paul is saying. Yes, unity is reality, but unity must be earnestly maintained. It must be displayed in the public arena so that we can see it, and so that those who watch can see it. It's reality but it must be maintained visibly, must be seen, displayed. And it's not going to just happen accidentally or by default. We must be earnest about this, diligent in working towards displaying this unity. That's what he's after this morning. That's what he's saying. Now, depending on what translation you read, verse 1 probably begins with something like, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Some variation of that. And it starts that way in English because that's how we write English sentences. Subject, verb, predicate. That's how we write English. So that's how it begins in your English translation. But in the original, the verb is actually first. He ends chapter 3 with that great praise. To him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Strongly urge you, I then. Right there immediately. 
there's a switch. His tone changes. Right from the start, he's about to get after you, so to speak. So get ready. Now, the differences in these two halves of the book are not quite this stark, but I sort of see it like this. For three chapters, Paul has been largely standing and looking to heaven with his arms outstretched, declaring these glorious things, and has been glancing back at us, describing it and urging us to come with him and get, get into and become a part of his enthralled vision. That's what he's been doing for three chapters. And now as we come to chapter 4, things change. The focus changes. He's still, he's still standing there looking towards heaven. It, it's kind of like if you, have, if you have children and you've seen things out the window in your yard or, or on the street and you want to draw them into it, you, you look out there and you, with a beaming face, you look back and say, oh, you should see this. Look out there. Come on over here. And your, your hope is that they'll come over to you but eventually, Paul and you, still standing next to the window, you turn, your whole body is now looking at them. And now you're going to speak to them directly. Paul's going to speak to us directly about what we must do. He hasn't left the window. We're going to see he keeps coming back to that. But the focus has changed. Now he begins, I strongly urge you. I exhort you, implore you authoritatively plead with you as a foundational and now imprisoned apostle. Walk in a worthy manner. Now be careful here that you come to this with the right mindset. This is not a suggestion. It's not a good or decent idea. It's not a, you know, hey, I was thinking, why don't you try? None of that. This is an expectation that is required of you. To turn away from this and not do it is sin. The Bible knows nothing of a genuine Christian who is not earnestly seeking to walk in a worthy manner. Now, all genuine Christians struggle in that walk and fail sometimes. But all genuine Christians are struggling to walk that way. This is expected of you, required of you. Whatever follows on after this lead-in, you must give heed to. You must. But while we're talking about mindset, let's also note something about worthy walking. Worthy walking is not the kind of walking that makes the walker worthy of something. Worthy walking is not the kind of walking that makes the walker worthy of something. As if, you know, if I live, if I walk in this way, then I'll become worthy of in this case, being saved. Never. We are not anything, we will never do anything that makes us worthy of this great salvation. Instead, what Paul is trying to say might be better captured by the word suitable. Walk in a suitable manner. We could translate it that way. Walk in a manner that matches. Walk in a manner that is worthy of being associated with. That's what he's trying to say here. It's suitable walking. It's worthy of being associated with something, but worthy of being associated with what? The calling to which you have been called. Paul's looking directly at us, but he's not left the window. And here he kind of glances back out and he sees specifically chapters 1 and 2. He sees a glorious calling. 
The call of God that was his sovereign, gracious, merciful election and predestination and calling and saving and adopting of you individually and of me individually to be partakers in something marvelous. When we finally came to believe, each of us was sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is, as verse, verse 14 of chapter 1 says, the earnest payment the guarantee for us of a great and vast future inheritance. We were fashioned all together then into this one new man by which and in which God carries out his works here in this world prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A marvelous, glorious calling. We are now objects of his affection. We are the loving portion, lot that he has chosen. It is a marvelous calling. In us, he dwells personally, and in us corporately, he dwells. It is a marvelous calling. He has blessed us, you might sum it up by saying, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Chapter 1, verse 3. It is a marvelous calling. Paul looks back and he gazes through the first couple chapters. It's, it's stunning to him, and it should be stunning to you. If it's just information, there's something wrong. It's stunning to him. And he asks, what kind of walking matches that? What kind of walking is suitable for that? Is worthy of being associated with all of that? What kind of walking? And that launches him off on a three-chapter extended answer. But here, in our text, the first thing he moves to, and this should tell us something, first thing that comes to his mind has to do with unity in this group. Has to do with how we relate to one another. Christians in the church, Christians in families, Christians in other relationships, the first thing that comes to his mind is what he immediately moves to. Verse 2. Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. First thing that comes to his mind. Now conceptually, this verse can be broken into two halves. And if, actually, if you're looking at the NIV translation, you'll see there's a semicolon there in the middle to try to show that. These two halves, of course, fit together, but they're slightly different. One is a little more internally focused and one is a little more externally focused. Now, they fit together, of course. Each of them is needed. They each, they both together are necessary. Paul's point here in mentioning these particular things is that if you want to be concerned about, and you must be, if you want to be concerned about maintaining Christian unity, these are the things you need to focus on. There's just scads of other stuff that would be helpful too. But these things right here are first and foremost. That's why he mentions them. They work together. These are the things that we should be thinking about and praying, to, to go back into chapter 3, praying that the Spirit would work in us to renovate us in these regards. These are the things we should be thinking about and focusing on. These things, growing in individuals and then growing in a church body, will actually sever the roots of discord and animosity. That's why he tells us these things. We should focus on them. So we will. We're going to drill down into verse 2 just a little bit. 
Walk in humility and gentleness. These first two words, they form a natural pair because together they are addressing more of the internal. They're a little more pointed about how we should internally be thinking about ourselves. What we should think about when we come to our minds. What we really should be thinking about, about ourselves. I emphasize the word really because all of us know, I don't think that anybody here would deny that we, we shouldn't be humble, we shouldn't be gentle. Nobody's going to vote against that. But the fact is that it doesn't come to us naturally. We aren't fully this. Naturally, our natural dispositions as fallen human beings, what we naturally are is proud. What we naturally are is remarkably self-centered. Automatically, without even thinking about it, we are born thinking highly of ourselves. We don't need to be taught that. It comes natural to us. Just look at your kids. We work hard at teaching kids to think about other people. They very naturally think about themselves. But it's not just kids. And it's not just some adults who clearly are far more fixed on themselves than they should be. And it's not just non-Christians. Christians too. Everybody. We're all the same. We all have the same fallen nature in us. It is said that the sweetest sound to any man's ear is the sound of his own name. That's who we are. We get up in the morning automatically thinking about ourselves. Now part of that's natural. Who else is going to brush my teeth? Who else is going to make my breakfast? I mean, I have to think about me. But the problem is that my fallen nature and your fallen nature is going to grab a hold of that and has, has already twisted it and has elevated you onto a pedestal and has set you there and from that perspective you naturally look at all of the rest of the world as revolving around you. You evaluate everything automatically in relation to you. What you think about things and what you think about people are related to how they affect you. Automatically. That's what happens. John Sott comments about how easy it is to prove this in common experience. Think through your life. The people to whom you are immediately, instinctively drawn. The people with whom you most easily get along. Who are they? Invariably, they are people who, in some way, affirm you. They encourage you. They give you the R-E-S-P-E-C-T that you think you deserve. They give you strokes. They lift up your ego. And the converse is true. People who aren't like that, who irritate you, who insult you, who don't respect you, you avoid them. You don't like them. And if you're just a little bit bothered by the fact that I'm talking about you and how you act, you're proving my point. You get attacked, you get upset. But it's not just you, it's me too. I avoid people who irritate and attack me. We're all in the same boat. That's who we are, naturally. Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time, I'm sure you know that you are supposed to fight against pride and for humility and gentleness of spirit. We know that 
The problem is that it does not come natural to us. What's in our nature is the other, pride. Twin characteristics of pride and entitlement are natural in us. I am somebody and therefore I deserve something. I am somebody good and special and competent and knowledgeable and I deserve more than what he or she just gave me. I'm insulted. I've been disrespected. That was offensive to me, to me because it belittled me. I cannot allow that to go on unchallenged or unjudged because if it does, other people might begin to think that about me too. I'd hear that more often and I'd get less and less of the affirmation and approval that I deserve. The implications of this for unity are obvious. Think about it for just a second. What happens when somebody in your family or somebody you're in a relationship with, somebody here in the church body, insults you in some way, denies you the respect you deserve, treats your belongings poorly, something like that. What happens? Do you get angry? Some sort of a wall get built up either externally or I'm more prone for the internal one because I know how I'm supposed to act on the outside. But the internal wall goes up in my heart. I begin to avoid this person. Kind of steer my, just my walking even away from them. I don't like him quite as much. Maybe it becomes external for you and you begin to gossip about them. Try to get other people kind of on your side in the issue so that you can be affirmed and they can be torn down. Maybe it becomes so bad that you leave the church. About in your family, relations between your parents and kids or between spouses, what happens when your spouse doesn't give you the respect you deserve? Does that wall go up between you? Trying to defend yourself? Maybe you try to undercut them to kind of get back at them and tell them they're not who they think they are either. Maybe you go tell the neighbor that. Maybe it becomes so bad that you actually get a divorce and go looking for somebody else who will give you the respect that you think you deserve. Sadly, all of these responses are common in the church. And some of them are common in our church at times. This is not the way it is supposed to be, but it is. Now, there, clearly there are good reasons to leave a church. And clearly the Bible tells us that we are supposed to respect our spouses and we are supposed to seek protection from physical abuse. And There are various exceptions and qualifications, but the point is we should be far less concerned about the qualifications than about owning up to our own pride. How different it would be to have the attitude of humility and gentleness in spirit. I once heard somebody say, I am guilty of everything I have ever been accused of. And while that might not literally be true, it is certainly in the right place of gentleness and meekness and spirit. To embellish that comment a little bit and to add on to it, that kind of humble attitude is saying, you accuse me of that? Well, you don't know the half of it. I actually sin in a whole bunch of other ways. You saw the sanitized version. 
You think I'm this? I am. And much more. You don't know. You don't know all of me. I know me best. And I know that I'm worse than what you think. What I really am is a man filled with sin that is infinite upon infinite. But I am also a man that has been forgiven due to nothing I did. A man who stands in grace due to nothing I did. A man who has received a glorious inheritance, who has been called to a fabulous calling due to nothing I did, but due only to one who humbled himself and meekly took on the form of a servant and went to the cross. And my hope and my prayer is that I would become more like him, more like him who rescued me from this body of death transferred me into the kingdom of light, seated me with him in the heavenly places. That's who I want to be, but I know that I am not that right now. Walk with that kind of humility and gentleness in spirit. Thinking that about yourself. Thinking low of yourself thinking of Christ and what he has done for you, not because of you, but what he has elevated you to because of him. The second pair in verse 2 is also obviously touching on personal attitudes, but the focus here is a little more external. How can we maintain unity? Walk in patience, bearing with one another in love. These two terms address how we are to deal with those who aggravate us. And it will happen because you still live around a whole bunch of sinners. Given that you are growing in this perspective of yourself that is humble, gentle, meek is another way to translate that. Given that you're growing in that perspective of yourself, well, how should you respond to people when they say things that are hurtful, when they say things that are destructive? when they misuse your things or violate your trust, how should you respond? In patience. That is, you should hold back retribution. You should entrust justice to be carried out somewhere else by someone else. As Christ said, Peter reports in 1 Peter that though he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. Though he suffered, he did not threaten, but instead he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He was patient with his accusers. Patience waits. And while waiting, you are to bear with the other person, enduring all the wrongs done to you, restraining yourself when tempted to act. We might actually translate this as restrain yourselves from one another. Not like two friends who want to fight, or two people who want to fight but their friends hold them back, but like two people who seem to have good reason to fight but they hold themselves back. They bear with the offense done against them by the other. In patience, they bear along, but this must be done in love. You see, it is highly possible 
in our fallen hearts to look at that verse in First Peter about entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly and to think with glee, you're going to get yours someday. That is not what he's talking about. With that attitude, the same sin is still harbored and reigning inside of you. To bear with one another in love means to think about the other. You've got that humble attitude that knows who you really are. And as you're growing in that, it's taken you a little bit at least off of that pedestal. And you're now thinking about the other person. You're realizing this person is still in process. This person right here has been made God's special chosen portion. Gloriously loved by Him. And this person is still in process. And yes, they sinned against me. Granted. But I'm not going to seek the justice. I'm going to let God sort that out. And in fact, He already has the cross. I'm going to respond to this person in a way that helps them to overcome that sin So it might involve some confrontation. But it's not a confrontation that is rooted in my desire to make it right for me. It's rooted in a desire to make it right for them. Because I love that person. And I want to see them become all that God wants them to be. Bear with one another in love. Does this come naturally? No, of course not. That's why we must pray for the Spirit to work this into us, to make us this kind of people, the kind of person who forgives the offense 70 times 7. Jesus does not mean 490. He means infinitely. That's what God needs to work in us. These things, several of them, are specifically listed as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. This is what God does in us. But at the same time, we're commanded to do it here because we must work it out in obedience. Otherwise, you never command us to do these things. We are to walk with the inner attitudes of humility and meekness. Walk with patience. Walk in love-filled endurance when provoked. I strongly urge you to do this, says Paul. These attitudes will cut off the root that is behind all of the discord and animosity in your relationships. It will. God's put it here because it will. People who are hard to offend and are very patient when they actually are offended can get along very well with all the rest of us. Especially if we too are growing in these same attitudes of being hard to offend and very gracious and patient when offended. That's what he's wanting to do here. Verse 2 helps us by focusing in our attention on these things in particular. It highlights what we need to be, what we need to do. You need to think less of yourself, less often and less highly, and more of others and more patiently towards others, bearing with them in their fallenness. But as I preach these things to you, I am imagining that it's not the first time you ever thought about it. There are probably very few of us today who have never heard that we're supposed to be humble and not proud. Probably have heard the information before about needing to be patient and loving. 
This probably is not revolutionary information to you. It's okay, Paul does not write just for it to be information to you. Paul never writes theological treatises treatises so that you know more. Paul's not doing that. He does give us the necessary information, but notice that it's sandwiched between the strong urging of verse 1 and the eager striving of verse 3. Paul knows that fundamentally our problem is not an information problem. It's not a knowledge gap here. Fundamentally, the problem is inside. It's in the heart. It's in our attitude. And so the apostle's challenge falls most heavily on the attitude. I strongly urge you. You are to be eager to do this. See, he never defines any of these terms. I spent much, much more time on them than Paul did. Paul comes back to the challenge of the attitude, the challenge of the heart. Are you eager for this? Are you earnest for it? Do you want to maintain it more than you want to maintain your own status and your own rights? Are you pulling out all the stops to make sure that this happens? Are you diligent in your efforts to make verse 2 the displayed reality of this unity? Are you diligent in your efforts to make that true of you and of us? When I turn that on myself and I ask myself those kinds of questions, I am often greatly disappointed. Sometimes I can say yes, but not all the time. I'm preparing to preach this sermon this week, and several incidences arise in which I realize, I need to hear this sermon. It's amazing to me how I can study something and be thinking about it and thinking about how to communicate it and then I can realize that I don't even know it myself. (laughs) I can read the words, I can study them, but living it is a different thing. As I said, I do a pretty good job of not putting up the external wall, but internally I do. All of us are in this boat. The call, the challenge to us is repent. Don't gloss it over by saying, you know, I'm just kind of one of those people that's easily irritated. Or I'm just, it's just my personality to be a little more angry. No, it's sin. Repent. And cry out to God that he would change you. That he would change how you look at you. That he would change how you look at other people. What you're supposed to do is right there in verse 2, and you probably already sort of knew it. The challenge is at your heart attitude. He has made unity. Peace maintains it and displays it, makes it apparent to all who are watching. A community that is at peace within, based on individuals who are at peace with other individuals, the biblical shalom, not just lack of fighting, but also the positive of loving affection for. That kind of community of peace displays to people. We are a people bound together. There's something real here. It shows off the manifold wisdom of God. Chapter 3, verse 10. You must make it priority. Unity must be earnestly maintained. It's the first aspect of unity. The second is going to be a little shorter. It's in verses 4 to 6, and it's an extension of this first aspect. 
Unity must be earnestly maintained because unity has been gloriously gained. Unity must be maintained because in the gospel this unity is. It already has been gloriously gained. This much is obvious from verses 4 to 6. The word one appears seven times in those three verses. What do you think Paul's trying to say? He hasn't left the window, remember. He looks back out the window and all that he sees in the front yard is one. Everywhere. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit in this one hope. Notice for a minute how the one triune God permeates these verses. Verse 6, you've got God the Father. Verse 5, you've got the Lord Jesus. And here in verse 4, you've got the one spirit. One God in three persons, each of them doing slightly different things. The one spirit who is the seal, that earnest payment for every genuine believer. This one spirit equally lives in and works in each of us who has heard and believed the gospel. He comes and he indwells each of us. He brings to us wisdom. He enlightens each of our eyes. He fashions each of us into this one body, this one new temple, the church in which the one spirit dwells. There is only one spirit, only one doing all of these things and more for the one body of believers, the one new humanity gathered together in and under Christ. From Christ's perspective as the head, he only has one body. We'll one day see that to be true in heaven. And God's glory and really our good is intimately connected to us seeing that here now and displaying it for all others to see as well. There is one body. There is one Lord and one faith and one baptism. The Lord Jesus comes to the fore now. There's only one Christ and one true body of doctrine that connects us to Him. There's only one baptism in Him. Now some think that the baptism is talking about water baptism, and it may be, it's hard to decide. I kind of think it's a little more metaphorical and it's talking about us being immersed into Christ. The reason I think that is that all these things are common for all believers and there actually are some believers who have not been water baptized yet. So I think it's a metaphorical baptism, but, but either way, the same point comes to the fore. Not many, one. There is not, there are not several parties, there are not multiple competing faiths, there is no divided Christ. I think there's a special point of rebuke to us here. Thinking about the one faith. Historically, Christians have been prone to divide over doctrine. Or, conversely, to reunite despite doctrine. There's a balance that we need to walk there. We need to pay attention to it. We cannot... We cannot reunite ignoring all doctrine. We can't neglect it. We can't neglect the one Lord Jesus. Doctrine defines the lines of unity. There are lines. If you're not in the circle, then you're not one of us. In the Lord's eyes, and we must also say in our eyes. We must draw lines. 
But at the same time, we must be very careful to not draw the circle too small. We're really prone to that. Again, it relates back to our attitudes to think that we know everything exactly right. In the free church, we've got a statement that kind of tries to struggle with this balance. We say, who can be involved in our churches? Who can be members in our churches? Believers only. But all believers. It's trying to struggle with that tension. Now, of course, we've got to define some terms or what's a believer. But you see, they're wrestling with that tension. Believers only, but all believers. We need to be careful to maintain that balance. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't have any distinctions in our different churches. We're going to have to have distinctions. When it comes down to very practical things like what kind of songs do you sing, somebody's got to make a decision. We're going to make different decisions about that. There's room for distinctions, but we need to be very careful that we not let the distinctions either seem to create or actually create barriers between us so that we subdivide the circle and create strong and tall walls between believers. We need to pay attention to that. Walking this balance is hard. There is a circle, but don't make it too small. There's one faith that connects us to the one Lord and our one baptism. Finally, there is one God and Father of all, of all the believing family that is. That's clearly the context here. He's the one God and Father of everybody in the church. Think back to chapter 1 again, where we see God the Father active in so many things. He's the one who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He's the one who predestined us to adoption, each of us. He's the one who's claimed us as his chosen portion and highly values us in 118. Each of us equally. He is the Father of us all, over all and through all and in all. He reigns over us as God, works out his plan through us and actually in us. And he's working in you just the same as he's working in me. Now we're different. He's doing different things. But he is at work in you and he is at work in me. And as the saying goes, if he is your father and he is my father and he's your father and your father, then we are all brothers and sisters. Our unity is rooted in this one Father that we have, this one Lord that we are in, this one Spirit who draws us together, the one triune God, one faith, one baptism, one everywhere Paul looks. Unity exists and it cannot be broken any more than God can be broken apart. But must be maintained, displayed in public for all to see. Some have called this display of unity the untried apologetic. John 17, verse 21, Jesus prays for Christians. He prays, Lord, I pray that they would be... Lord, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they be in us also, that the world may know that you sent me. An apologetic argument is an argument trying to prove something. And Jesus says there is a strong apologetic argument in this publicly displayed unity. 
There's a strong statement of the truth of the gospel. Father, that you sent me here to take on a body and to go to the cross and to form a new man. When, when people look and they see all kinds of widely divergent, Jew, Gentile, and every other type of person who shouldn't get along and really don't get along anywhere else, drawn together into this one new man and united, people are going to say, what is going on there? There's a strong statement there, a strong apologetic too bad it's untried. I have an idea. Actually, Paul had an idea, and I'm just copying. Why don't we try that this year? Why don't we? Now, I'm not announcing some new church program. I'm just exhorting you, along with the Bible, be eager to maintain Christian unity. Why don't we do that? Start small. In fact, start moving towards unity by going off all by yourself. Take your Bible. Look through any of the hundreds of places in the Old Testament that talk about how God loves the humble and contrite heart. Think about the numerous places that says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Take the bulletin insert. Look in your bulletin right now. There's a sheet in there. Long list of things in two columns. Contrasting the proud and unbroken person with the humble and broken person. This is a long list. It's thorough. It's convicting. Put together a few years back by Nancy Lee DeMoss. Take that with you and go pray and ask God to show you you. To make you clear to you Walk through the list and say, what am I like? Who am I really? If you find yourself all in the right column, you're lying to yourself. Work through that. It's, it's a powerful list. It has been very powerful in my life. Got it stuck on my bulletin board in my office because it's still powerful in my life. Work through that list. Take it. Write down things. See what you're not. Move over to the right and see what you're supposed to be. How that happens is God working change in your life by using the stuff in the first three chapters of Ephesians to grip you. He will use those means as you pray and fellowship with other believers over the content, for instance, in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He'll use that to grab you and change you. It's hard to be really proud when you realize you had nothing to do with yourself being saved. It's hard to act like that if these chapters have gripped you. Pray for that. Evaluate how you respond to people in situations. Not situations that go like you'd hope they would. Everybody responds well in those. Look at how you responded when things didn't go like you hoped they would. Think about the people that you don't like and you don't get along with. Be rigorous with yourself. And then repent. I once heard somebody say that God doesn't forgive mistakes or boo-boos or errors or the way my personality is. God forgives sin. Repent of the sin. And he'll work change in you. Turn away from it. 
And while you stand there next to the window, don't leave the window, but then turn and begin to interact with other people in the house, in your family or in the house of God here. And be alert to the ways that you've already detected. I'm weak here. Be alert to them. Watch yourself. And when you see sin rise in you, repent. And pray for God to change you and make you what you should be right over there on the right-hand side. That rigorous process, that's how God works change in us. We cry out to him, Lord, make me who I'm supposed to be. Help me, give me strength to obey you here. I see this and I don't want to be it. I'm turning away from it. Give me strength, please. Can you really become that kind of person this year? Can we become that kind of a church? Humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. He's able to do that. In fact, the Bible seems to describe that as Christian maturity itself. If you know all kinds of vast theological doctrine, but have not this kind of love, what are you? Only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. This is Christian maturity. There are other things to add on, perhaps, but this is the one in this text. This is the one we need to think about right now. Focus on it. Repent and cry out to God for change. He is infinitely able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. To Him be glory in the church. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.